This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.34, A Leader for All Space Noids. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm reading a rehearsed speech that Nina wrote for me. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and I have never once betrayed anyone. Wait, hold on. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 281 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Kit G, Tonono, and Taliarchus. Mobile Suit Breakdown is only possible with the support of listeners like you. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at gundampodcast.com slash patreon. Or make a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. The Love is the Pulse of the Memes contest closed last night. Thank you to everyone who entered. We got some really incredible memes. We will be announcing the winners sometime this coming week. So if you entered, be sure to keep an eye on our social media. And of course, we'll also announce the winners on next week's episode of the podcast. But if you want to know right away, follow us on social media. Before we get started with this week's episode, a couple of listeners wrote in to add their insight on a couple of outstanding questions from last week. First, we pointed out that episode 32, Unidentified Mobile Suits, was marred by wonky, off-model animation, especially the characters' faces, and especially Yazan's face. Well, Brian wrote in to point out that the animation director for that episode, the person on staff whose job it is to oversee the animation and make sure that everything is consistent, was Kanayama Akihiro, a veteran animator and animation director who often worked on Tomino's projects during the 80s. Kanayama was also one of only a handful of Zeta staffers older than Tomino himself. In 2007, he was part of a group of veteran animators, including the legendary Satoshi Kon, who tried to unionize Japan's animation industry. But when it comes to his work on Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta, Brian observes that Kaneyama's episodes are consistently inconsistent. We'll have to keep an eye on them as we continue watching. Second, Arc Doppler wrote in to share with us one theory about why so many languages combine the colors blue and green. The major theory for this is that the development of words for colors corresponds to their salience in the natural environment. Black and white are first because dark versus light is a dichotomy that is easily recognized and is quite intuitive. Red follows after because blood is red, clay is red, berries are red, and so on. But while it's true that blue occurs only rarely in animals, plants, and minerals, the sky is right there. So this theory doesn't entirely explain why blue is so late to enter into most languages. 
Well, according to the theory that Arkdoppler related to us, cultures develop words for different colors as they develop the ability to make pigments in those different colors. Now, this makes intuitive sense. You don't need words to distinguish the color of the sky from the color of a tree, blue from green, because the sky is self-evidently not a tree. If the sky is your only reference for the color blue, then you just describe sky-colored, the color of the sky. You don't need a separate word conceptually for it. Once you can grind up bits of bug carapace or lapis lazuli to make sky-colored pigment and tree-colored pigment, those two pigments need to be distinguishable in the language. So the easiest colors to render in pigment form are the first ones to get names. Blue comes later because it's really hard to make blue pigment. After all, you can't grind up the sky to make cerulean. But now back to this week. In today's episode, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 33, The Messenger from Axis. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers an unexpected bird and a visit from special guest and physics consultant Iraj to talk about the solar system. But first, let's tune in to TNN. My career in the Titans was dead in the void. The stories in this advertisement are real. The voices have been changed to protect the anonymity of the participants. I was posted to Alexandria as a mobile suit squadron leader, but my commander didn't appreciate the unique skills I brought to the organization. I was on the outside, looking in. Yazanji was a promising young officer who found himself in the wrong job. I thought things would improve after Ayuk disintegrated my commander, but that who replaced him clearly didn't trust me either. The last straw came when I found out he'd assigned one of my projects, destroying the Zeta Gundam, to a useless loser who should be dead. Yazan was going nowhere fast. I graduated from Augusta Newtype University with top marks, but I struggled to find a commander who respected me as a pilot, a Newtype, and a woman. Sarah Z knew she deserved better, but she didn't know how to find it. I was tired of officers doubting whether or not I could kill the enemy, or expecting me to look after whatever random orphans happened to wind up on the ship. I wanted someone who would appreciate me for my skills and help me achieve my ambitions. The turning point came when my classmate Siddeley was killed in battle. I might still be too young to drink or vote, but I knew I couldn't afford to wait for things to get better. Sarah was running out of time. So I got on the Titan's internet, and I went to monsters.fed. I went to monsters.fed. I filled out a few quick forms, and by the time I'd entered my age, my gender, and that I was a new type, I already had an offer to transfer to the Dogos Gear. I found a commander who treats me the way I deserve. I found a posting where I'm valued for who I am. Monsters.fed is the internal Titans job site where qualified candidates can find hundreds of open positions, from research and development at the Gate of Zidane to intelligence gathering in New Hong Kong City. And, due to unspecified circumstances, we now have more openings than ever. So if you've been waiting for the right time to make a move, wait no longer. Monsters.fed. If you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will offer you an exciting position with great pay and plenty of opportunities for advancement. 
And now the recap for the messenger from Axis. Freed from having to worry about an imminent Titan's attack, the crew of the Argama shift their focus to the incredible Axis force that surrounds them. The Guadan battleship, like the old Guazine of the One Year War, but even more massive, and uncountable mobile suits. How were they able to build all of this while hiding in an asteroid belt, Bright wonders aloud. Wang Li seems almost gleeful as he imagines Axis slowly building up its forces, able to do so in secret due to the negligence and disinterest of the Federation government. He sees them as kindred spirits to Ayug and strong potential allies. Bright, Wong Li, Quattro, Rekoa, Apoli, and Camille get in the shuttle and head over to the Guadan to begin negotiations. On arrival, Quattro bristles to see Haman Karn walk past, radiating arrogance. Even Camille is struck by her, his new type sense responding to her presence. The passageways of the ship are lined with soldiers in identical uniforms. They come to a large, high-ceilinged chamber with rich red carpeting and decorated walls. Here, Wang Li formally introduces himself as Ayug's appointed representative and asks to be introduced to their leader. Haman says she will introduce them and takes them through two sets of gigantic doors into a chamber that dwarfs the one they just left. Its vaulted ceiling is covered in gilded decorations. Guards stand at attention as ladies' maids flutter around the throne. And on the dais sits eight-year-old Mineva Zabi, dressed in a uniform just like those worn by her father, aunt, and uncles during the One Year War. The Ayug delegation are struck by the opulence of the room and the youth of Axis' supposed leader. Wang Li quickly concludes that Haman is the true power and should be the focus of their negotiations. She orders the member of their group wearing sunglasses, which is Quattro, to approach Princess Minerva. When he does, Minerva addresses him as Shar Aznable, to the shock of most of his Ayug crewmates. She also claims to remember him, although he hasn't seen her since she was two. She commends his years of intelligence work on behalf of Axis and begins a little speech about the prosperity of all spacenoids depending on the revival of Xeon, a speech clearly practiced ahead of time and fed to her by Haman. Quattro approaches, leaning down so that he can look Minerva in the eye. She seems uncertain and is looking to Haman for guidance when Quattro loses his temper. How dare you raise her like this, close-minded and rigid? He stalks threateningly toward Haman, grabbing hold of her shirt. This is her destiny, Haman replies, pulling her gun, as soldiers take hold of Quattro's arms. He struggles, but is soon surrounded and unable to move. His companions yell for him to calm down, but it is too late. They are locked in a room, all chance of negotiating an alliance lost. Quattro asks Camille for help escaping, and the two begin to fight. Real punches and kicks, as Camille accuses Quattro of selfishness, cowardice, treachery. The rest of their group try to break them up, but Camille is knocked to the ground and clearly in a lot of pain. When the guard outside looks in to see what the commotion is about, they yell for him to bring a doctor. He finally enters the room, 
and Wong Lee takes his gun, allowing Quattro to flee. A few minutes later, it is decided that Reko and Camille will go look for Quattro, and will meet Bright, Wong Lee, and Apoli back at the shuttle. But Quattro didn't go looking for an exit. He went looking for Haman. He finds her, only to hesitate and have his shot blocked by Haman's guards. Soon more guards arrive, and Quattro would certainly have been killed or recaptured if it weren't for the arrival of Rekua and Camille. The two fight off some of the reinforcements, and Rekua dives in front of Quattro as the other guards fire. A shot meant for him grazes her shoulder. They find their way to a ready room and disguise themselves in Axis normal suits. Camille taking Quattro to task for acting rashly when he's usually so level-headed. Rekua seems surprised that reviving the Zabi family isn't among Quattro's goals. All Quattro can say is that he's always been an independent man. In a confusion of smoke, explosions, and gunfire, the two groups of AUG representatives fight their way to the shuttle and out of the Guadan. Noticing the commotion, the Argama prepares its own guns, and the moment the shuttle launches, they deploy countless dummies inflatable asteroids that disturb the Guadan's radar and make it nearly impossible for spotters to sight the shuttle or the Argama. The Titans choose this moment to attack. Yazan and two wingmen goad Camille into chasing them, only to peel off from each other and catch the Zeta Gundam in a net strung between their mobile suits. The net is electrified, stunning and trapping the Zeta until Quattro arrives in the Hyakushiki to cut it loose. Rekoa, struggling against Yazan, has yet another vision of Sirocco, a possibly deadly distraction in the midst of battle. Just in time, the Radish arrives, and its own complement of mobile suits, led by Emma and Katz, fight off the Titans. Any sense of victory is short-lived. Sirocco pledges his life to Minerva, cementing a Titans-Axis alliance. From now on, Ayug will be badly outnumbered. So, Nina, where are Shinta and Kum? <laughs> Don't make me come over there. <laughs> It's like Fa is not allowed to be in a scene until she has established that she is being a good mother and has not just abandoned the orphans. Well, let's talk for a moment about the first of those scenes, because this is not actually Camille trying to make sure she's being a good mother. This is Camille deflecting, and he can tell Fa is about to ask him some questions or criticize him, and he's trying to turn it back around on her. That's what he's doing. You don't have a right to press me. Where are your children? Your children. Get back in the house, woman. You're making faces at me. Yeah, but... I am. <laughs> I mean, kind of. I don't think I don't think that's quite what Camille's doing, but I really don't like what this episode does with Fa on the whole. I think it's pretty clear that when she's coming at him, she's doing that Camille. He's in trouble with Fa and she's about to like press him. And his way of dealing with that is to be like Yo, Fa, aren't you supposed to be looking after some children right now and not hassling me? <laughs> this is not the Camille you know and love, I know. I know, I know. But the thing about Fa in this episode is it feels so regressive for her character. We're getting Fa being unreasonably jealous of Camille's 
uh, interest in other women, which is like a thing Fa displayed early on, but has mostly gotten over. I mean, even compared to last episode, she sees him checking on Rekoa. She doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah. She understands it. When the kids get nosy, she tells them to hush and that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, she doesn't seem to have any kind of a problem with it there. And yet here, she jumps to the conclusion that the only reason Camille is going is because he's fixated on Rekoa. However, I don't necessarily think she's wrong. <laughs> I think Camille was ordered to go. Well. And I think that's what he's doing with the deflection to Shinta and Kum is like, I'm doing my duty. What about yours? I would agree with you that it was simply that he was ordered to go, except that when Rekoa, when they're trying to break out of the Axis ship, is like, I'll go. And they decide that she should go because... You know, maybe a woman will attract less attention or they'll put their guard down. And Camille is immediately like, it's too dangerous for her to go alone. I should go too. Completely negating the purpose of her <laughs> going alone. And Bright just kind of caves like, okay, sure, whatever. So it's not difficult for me to imagine Camille coming up with some reason why he really needs to be there because he's worried about Rekwa doing something reckless, which is not an unfounded concern, right? We've established... <laughs> She is continually doing these very dangerous things. Yeah, but this boarding party is like every main character on the ship except for Fa. But do you think Fa is wrong? Do you think Camille is not fixated on Rekoa? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> he's worried about her and he wants to save her. I think he's absolutely like preoccupied with the fact that something seems off about her and that he wants to know what it is and that he wants to help. I don't think it's romantic if that's what Fa is worried about. And I do think that's what Fa is worried about. Or she's worried that he's going to be putting himself in danger or not, like, not being careful enough of himself because he's so worried about someone else. But then the Fa we get at the end of the episode in a kind of inverse of this scene where she's also catching up to Camille, throwing herself at him. In both of these scenes, she's throwing herself like propelling herself in his direction in the first one it was to like grab hold of him and scold him and in the second one it's to grab him in an embrace so in this mirror image at the end now she's giggling and she's just so happy that he's back alive and like this doesn't feel like fa either Particularly because as dangerous situations go, I don't think the crew of the Argama ever quite knew how dangerous it was. Like, there's no reason for her to have known precisely how much danger they were in. And so her relief seems excessive. Camille goes out into dangerous situations all the time. And Fa never acts like this. And for Rekua of all people, when Fa's like, oh, if you're, if you're wounded, I'll take the Methus. For Rekua to then be like, this is no time for jokes. Ugh. Especially considering there's no way Fa would have fought any worse than Rekoa did this battle. Rekoa was terrible. With Sirocco all up in her head. He's living rent-free in her skull. Yep. And it's messing her up. She's off her game. Both of us were particularly incredulous when Rekoa gets into the Methus and is like, Ugh, I'm in so much pain. We're like, are you kidding me? You're a soldier. They'd have pumped you full of painkillers and amphetamines, which is what they would do with soldiers who had to fight for a really long time or had to fight wounded. They gave you enough drugs so that you would be able to keep going. Maybe what's really getting to Rekoa is all of that Sirocco energy. Did you notice she feels Sirocco's presence? On Yazan. Yeah. 
It makes me wonder if Sirocco almost like leaves an aura on people who accept him. Or perhaps he maintains some kind of connection between himself, his aura, and them. And I'm not going to stop harping on this. There's one more Fa scene. When she's on the bridge of the Argama during the mission, she's talking to Torres and uh, first Caesar, and then it's Sayugusa, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> but her role is basically to be there and to, like, scold Torres for not captaining correctly. I sort of saw it as kind of an inverse where she was defending Sayagusa. Like, he's doing as much as he can, as fast as he can. But yeah, definitely strange. It's just, it's bizarre characterization. It doesn't feel like the Fa that we've gotten to know. Hey, Nina, who do you think wrote this episode? Gee, I wonder. <laughs> it really just feels like they could have left Fa out completely and it wouldn't have mattered materially to the episode. Yeah. There was no reason to include Fa in this episode. <laughs> except for the briefest of panty shots at the end. You felt like that was necessary? Well, I'm saying that's the only reason I can imagine <laughs> that they felt they needed to include her. I don't find it necessary, no, <laughs> but... I don't know. Maybe someone has an axe to grind against women on the battlefield, besides Yazan. <laughs> as long as we're talking about gender dynamics, maybe now is the right time to talk about access. I don't have anything related to gender written down in my access notes, so take the wheel. Well... So Axis's leadership is Haman and Minerva, and besides Minerva's maids, every single other person we see on the Guadan is a young man. I get the impression of a, a beehive, of a queen and drones. Yeah. We really need to talk about the whole visual design aspect of Axis. I would like to point out Haman has the narrow, schemey eyes I spoke of. Because she's young. We know she's only 21, maybe 22. Uh, they could give her the big, round, expressive eyes. But because she's a villain. Or what passes for a villain in Gundam. They need to make her look like less of an ingenue. Uh, everything just super ornate. And Bright immediately flags this as a complete throwback. It's like, <laughs> don't these people understand? This is not how anyone does things anymore. But there's gold designs on the walls, red carpets, massive thick doors. Just the chamber that they're in. First, the audience chamber where they meet with Haman before they even open up the doors into the actual like throne room. With its vaulted ceilings and yeah. the bird flying through. But that first chamber you see is enormous. For a ship in space, that's astronomically huge. And then the doors open and it turns out that that antechamber was tiny compared to Minavazabi's throne room. And even look at the way they line the halls with soldiers, the way she has like a dozen maids. Yeah. Everything is extra. <laughs> Everything is to excess. Well, it's a huge show of strength for them because what they have are numbers. Bright is astonished, as am I, that they managed to build a ship like this and the number of mobile suits that they've been able to build, essentially in secret, just hiding out in an asteroid belt. Lots of resources out there. And it sounds like they've had about seven years unmolested to do as they please because the Earth Federation government is simply not interested in space. When the two sets of doors open into the throne room, we get a brief glimpse I would need to look at the stills again, some of the screen capture, but it looks like against the back wall, we don't get the sort of usual motif of the like vaguely eagle thing that you get with a lot of the Xeon stuff, but there's a, a figure of a woman against the back wall behind the throne. 
I'm going to want to look at it more closely because the brief glimpse that I got of it uh, was very reminiscent of a piece of like new age pagan art. If it is, I'm probably going to end up doing research on that. The uniforms in the normal suits are all clearly consciously reminiscent and in many cases almost identical to those worn by the original Xeon army. I thought the normal suits were exactly the same. The minute you see Quattro in this normal suit, you will have a flashback to him murdering Kaecilia. <laughs> oh, we're doing this again. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Except he did not succeed. He hesitated. For someone who is usually such a calm operator, Quattro who gets referred to as Char more often here. But still refers to himself as Quattro, even after he has been outed. His behavior feels not completely off character, but it's so different from what we're used to seeing from him. The first time I got struck by it is when he says, sort of mutters to his group, how could they name Minerva leader? at such a young age. And it's like, dude, it's called a figurehead. <laughs> it feels like he's being very naive. Yeah. <laughs> but that's surprising, right? He's not usually. Except in that he doesn't understand how other people's thought processes work. I guess when you put it like that, he's never really been one for the politics, right? He's never really understood them. He's never really known how to navigate or manipulate them. He is, as he points out, independent. He is about his own goals and his own desires. And in a lot of cases, is kind of a blunt instrument to achieve those things. I mean, we've seen him get most of what he wanted through murder. <laughs> For real, though. Yeah, the two weapons of Quattro Pagina are murder and abandoning children. So let's talk about that. Because my first impulse when he got angry about how they've raised Minima was to be like, well, you used to be here. Maybe if you'd stuck around, you could have raised her different. But I'm not sure he had a choice. In that you think he was sent away? I think he was forced out. They repeatedly reference sending him to spy on the Earth sphere. Well, they call it intelligence gathering, but, you know. Six in one, half dozen in the other. Well, it's pretty clear that Haman Karn is calling the shots here. And Shar is older than her. Shar is a famous hero of the war. Had Shar remained, he probably would have been a contender for leader of Axis Xeon. But since we know from watching Quattro in Ayug, he doesn't want to be the leader. And so it may have been a mutually agreed upon exile. Haman gets rid of a potential threat, a potential rallying point for those who oppose her. And Shaquatro gets to not be in charge. He gets to go back to the Earth Sphere and go back to doing space murder and building his own shadow white base out of all the finest orphans he can find. When we see Minima give her little very grown up speeches, which she has clearly been coached in. And every time she feels uncomfortable, she looks to Haman like, what, what do I do? <laughs> what do I say? Uh, I was actually reminded a lot of Sirocco because here's Haman saying, oh, this is right and proper. Minerva is going to be the leader of all space noids. This is her destiny. I'm just a supporting actor here. I'm just helping her prepare and you're managing things until she's old enough. And just like we had Sirocco before saying, no, I don't think I should be in charge of everything, but I want to facilitate the future leader of humanity. Like I want to find and mentor and help that person. I mean, it's funny you say that because Quattro also claims he doesn't want to be the leader. 
And he might be telling the truth, but that creates a triad between the three of them. I think he's the one who most legitimately doesn't want power, although he constantly exercises it, like we talked about last episode. He's constantly steering things, even though he does not want to be responsible for decisions or their outcomes. <laughs> yeah, I had wondered when Minima says, oh, you know, thank you for your years of intelligence work. Has he been a spy the whole time? Did he turn double agent? Or has he always just kind of been an independent operator? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's probably true what Quattro says. He has always been in it for himself. Which is how he can With really mean face. it <laughs> when he says, I've never once betrayed anyone. Which, that's right, guys. We finally got to <laughs> it. You can now use it whenever you like. It is no longer a spoiler. <laughs> we had to pause the show <laughs> so that I could laugh for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You should have set up a reaction camera. Sorry, video is <laughs> not my thing. But this is a very clever thing for Haman to have Minerva say here. Absolutely. Because it gives him cover to come back if he wanted to. That seems to be what they're hoping for and what they're offering him. It also potentially drives a wedge between him and his allies if it makes them think he's really been playing for another team this whole time. Potentially? I think actually... Certainly, Rekawa has some doubts about his priorities later on in the episode. And I think Camille has had very complicated feelings about Quattro for a while now, and they certainly are uh, not getting any better anytime soon. Yeah, I love their fake fight, which <laughs> didn't look or sound fake really at all. I think Quattro really beat up Camille. And I think Camille may have meant some of what he was saying about how Quattro is disloyal and also a coward. And only in it for himself. Yeah, I think Camille meant every word of that. This is my favorite part of this episode. And this is an episode with a lot of really good parts in it. So I love how it starts because Camille and Quattro are both giving each other the side eye. And Quattro turns to Camille and he basically says, Camille... I need you to help me cause chaos. You get this moment of Camille where he doesn't say anything, but this expression passes over his face like, finally. <laughs> Here I go killing again. Oh, and then they do have their fight. And at the end of it, Camille has clearly actually been beaten up. Oh, yeah. He's in some pain. Quattro knows how to fake everything except punching Camille. He had to make it look real or the guard wouldn't come in. So Bright totally buys this whole encounter. But it's Wong who's like, hey, new type, you can stop faking now. And Bright is like, is that true, Camille? And you can tell from what Bright is saying and the way Bright is saying it that Bright means, is it true that you've been faking? But Camille says, of course it's true. And I'm pretty sure Camille means everything I said about Quattro is true. I also think Camille particularly enjoyed getting to be the grown-up later when they're in the process of fleeing and they're all putting on uh, some of the Axis normal suits. And Camille starts addressing Quattro and it's like, I know you have your differences of opinion with Haman, but how could you behave so recklessly? <laughs> Lieutenant, you can't just attack everyone who makes you angry. I did that and look where I ended up. For once, Camille gets to be the grown-up and scold someone else. Yeah, later on... At the very end of the episode, Quattro is sort of sitting and stewing in his room by himself. And he mentions Haman Karn, and he mentions the ghost of Zeon. There's one weird translational thing. They have him say that Haman is beguiling him, which, at least in contemporary English, beguile is usually positive. To describe a woman beguiling someone, there's sort of like 
romantic or sexual overtones, like she has seduced you. Mm -hmm. She's using her wiles to confuse you, which is not at all the tone of what (laughs) is happening between Haman and Quattro. I listened to it again. I think in Japanese he says, which is more like she's laughing at me. She's making me look foolish. A laughing stock. That a woman is making a mockery of me. Mm-hmm. You mentioned everyone's reactions to finding out that he is Shah. I thought they all knew already. <laughs> and yet, clearly Wong Li knew. Bright seems not to have known. But even Camille acts kind of surprised, and he knew. He, like, he knew for certain. Oh, I didn't take Camille's response as surprise. I took Camille's response as, like, oh, no. Now everybody knows. Things are about to get real, real bad. Because the four responses we get are Wong Li being like, oh, I'm surprised they know each other that well, that she would know that he's actually Char. Bright is like, he's Char? And then Rekoa says, Quattro Pagina? And you can tell in that moment, she's suddenly realizing what an absurd name that is. And how did she ever <laughs> think that that was someone's real name? I don't think Apple says anything. He just looks kind of horrified. I don't know when this was established in the canon because this is coming from some B-canon material, some manga, but uh, at least according to one version of the Gundam canon, Apoli and Roberto came with Quattro from Axis. I feel like it gets mentioned very early in Zeta that they fought with him possibly during the one-year war that they've known him that long. Yeah. And so if that's true, they would have had to have known him as Shar. So Apoli's reaction is a little bit more like Camille's. Oh no, we're in trouble. The only legit piece of characterization we get from Minima, aside from the fact that she's very good at memorizing what other people want her to say, is when she's curled up in on herself, on the throne, crying, telling her maids she is certain that someone is coming to hurt her and she wants Haman My first read on this was actually, despite Haman's dismissiveness that this is cowardice, that perhaps Minerva is a new type and can sense that someone coming towards them means her harm. However, it's also completely possible that Haman or other people around Minerva have cultivated this fear in her to control her. Everyone is out to get you. I'm the only one who can protect you. I'm the only one who can keep you safe and be trusted. There are people all around who are trying to hurt you. But I think it's new type stuff. (laughs) In this show, at this point, I think the balance of probability lies on the side of new type stuff. I guess at this point, the writers still enjoyed the new type stuff. They hadn't yet gotten to the point where Tono was like, oh, I wish I had never invented new types. (laughs) So who do you think she senses coming to harm her? Soroko. Yeah, I was stunned by Haman's arrogance, where she thinks that because Soroko is willing to pledge his life, he's just some idiot. A clown. Baka. Well, Haman is very arrogant. She trusts that. I have a colony to sell her. But assuming that scene is Minerva having a new type moment, it's actually quite clever to put it there in the show, because at that point, we know Shaquatro is headed for the throne room. We don't yet know that Sirocco is nearby. Mm -hmm. And so it's only afterwards, looking back on it, that you can see it in that other context. I don't know. Maybe Quattro's decided to finish what he started with the zombies. Maybe that's why he lost it. Zombies are his trigger. 
In some ways, this feels like a real payoff episode because we've been teasing the arrival of Axis since like episode eight or nine. And we've been moving towards this meeting between Ayug and the Axis forces for a couple of episodes. But this also brings a whole bunch of new pieces onto the board, new characters, new mobile suits, and not just the Axis ones, but we also get Yazan's new special team, his wingmen that he personally carefully selected. Yeah, the fact that there's a group of three of them and they have a special attack that they do all three together that will only work once feels like a very blatant callback to the Black Tri-Stars. It does, doesn't it? Even the weapon, with the way it sort of electrocutes Camille's mobile suit, feels like a reference to the Adzam leader. I think they call it the spider web this time. I find I am filled with dread because at this point, the characters that I want to know more about the characters that I am interested in are all on the Axis and Titans side of the board. And I don't feel like I'm going to get the sort of character development or the time with them that I want. We're going to spend more time with all the characters that I'm tired of <laughs> and not really interested in or curious about. You mean everybody but Camille? Ugh, him too. Oh, he's a good boy. <laughs> Is he's he? He's a good boy. He's not irredeemable. By Gundam standards, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, earlier you said you had something you wanted to say about Caesar and Sayagusa. Yeah. So like I said earlier, this is a very exciting episode. There's a lot of really good scenes. It's action packed, but in a way you actually care about instead of what sometimes happens with some of the fighting when it gets kind of boring. But it's kind of a messy episode. There are some issues with the way it's put together. None of these, I want to say up front, none of these are like clear-cut, obvious, definite continuity errors, but they make it a little wonky. Feels like some of the corners don't quite align correctly. And it happens a bunch of times in this episode. So the one I was thinking of with Caesar and Sayagusa is that we get a couple of scenes on the bridge while most of the crew is on the Guadan, and we have Torres sitting in the pilot chair, Fa sort of floating around, and then a third person from the bridge crew sitting in the helmsman's chair in front of Torres. And the first time this happens, it's Saigusa. The second time this happens, it's Caesar. And the third time it happens, it's Saigusa again. Ha! So maybe there was a shift change that just happened off screen. Who knows? But... It feels a little weird. I'm astonished you even noticed, but good for you, man. In the throne room scene, when Quattro has been tackled by a couple of the Xeon guards and is fighting against them, there's a brief clip of Camille taking a step forward, looking one way, turning to go the other direction. And, and this body language makes it look like he is being closed in on by other Xeon guards. And we know that that's what's happening because they end up all arrested and in the brig. But they never show that. They don't have two guards closing in on him. They don't cut to guards closing in on him. They really only show them closing in on Quattro. And so this body movement by Camille feels orphaned. It feels like an incomplete scene. At another point, uh, I'm going to get real petty for a second. <laughs> During the escape scene, uh, Camille's gun changes. He goes from having a pistol most of the time to having a machine gun at the end. Maybe he picks it up off the ground, but we don't see it. And to have it suddenly shift like that feels like things don't quite align correctly. And taken together with the weird characterization of Va that doesn't feel quite right, 
it leaves the whole episode, for me at least, feeling like, like there's something very subtle wrong with it. I don't know what Wong intended to do. He didn't really get a chance to be the envoy he was trying to be. And he does correctly read the situation and conclude that Haman is the real power behind the throne. But he clearly doesn't know how to play this game. I don't know that that's necessarily true because I'm not sure what... We have no idea what he would be authorized to have offered them in a negotiation, like a proper negotiation, if Quattro hadn't messed everything up. <laughs> sure. But I just think of that ending scene with Sirocco and like, that's how you play Haman. Mm. And I don't think Wong was prepared to do that or any variation on that. I don't think Wong was prepared to flatter Haman in the way that was necessary. So you said play first, and I think that's more accurate. Sirocco is playing Haman. He has no intention to have like a real alliance. He intends to get something out of this and to use them. I think Ayug, for all that we hate Wong <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and find Carbine's motivations deeply suspect, I think they were making a good faith effort at a real alliance. I think you're right. I think Wong went in there expecting a business negotiation. We can offer this. We need this. We're going to talk about equipment and money and supplies and territory and... Concessions. and But Sirocco, maybe with his new type faculties, maybe he just looked at the pomp and circumstance of this room and he was like, oh, I understand. I know what version of myself I need to create. Are you sure this isn't just how he deals with all problems with people who think they're ranked higher than him? Swearing loyalty. Just pledging his life <laughs> to them. Axis did not even get a blood oath. That's true. They did not bargain hard enough. And Hammond thinks he's the idiot. And now for our research, an unexpected bird and the solar system, the, the weapon, not the astronomical thing. First, a quick correction. In last week's podcast, when I was talking about the green sea turtle's Japanese name, I called it Aomigame, and I was focused on the owl part of that. I got that right. I swallowed a syllable in there, though. The correct name for this species is actually Aomigame. I sincerely apologize. So literally green ocean turtle. Yep. Okay. Or blue. <laughs> Owl colored. As the double doors of the throne room part and Minavazabi's court is revealed for the first time, there's a brief shot, it's a second or two at most, in which we can see a large white bird flying through the chamber. It is, as far as I can remember, the first time that we have seen a non-human animal aboard a spaceship. And it is the second time Gundam has deployed a large white bird in flight during the reveal of a new and important female character. The first was Lala's swan, back in episode 34 of First Gundam. The bird's appearance is brief, but it's obvious enough if you're paying attention. It appears at the start of a scene of great significance, and as part of a larger series of scenes in which little is said and much is conveyed visually. The throne room is full of symbolic imagery designed to impress all who enter. It's a scene in which the characters, through whose eyes we experience Zeta Gundam, are themselves looking at and commenting on the aesthetics of Axis Zeon. So, we are primed to view everything in the throne room symbolically. And that goes double for the bird. 
Consider how out of place it is. A waiting bird in a throne room on a spaceship that was built out in the asteroid belt? Has that bird ever seen a marsh? But nothing is actually out of place in the throne room on the Guadan. That bird is there for a purpose. And since it's not carrying a gun, wearing a pilot's normal suit, or flanking the throne with the rest of Minerva's maids, it must be there to be seen. I had to really suppress laughter imagining a bird with a gun. <laughs> Minerva's guards are all trained birds, didn't you know? <laughs> Attack geese. Morphologically, the bird on the Guadan is large, with a long, sinuous neck, a short bill, and long legs that seem, although it's difficult to be certain, to be pink-colored. All its feathers are white. My first thought in trying to identify the depicted bird was that it might be the famous and endangered Japanese crane, considered to be a national symbol and national treasure of Japan. But while superficially similar, the Japanese crane has black feathers, a black neck, and a bright red patch on its head. It also has a long, thin beak, and its legs, although the right shape, are decidedly black. Could it perhaps be the less famous and even more endangered Siberian crane? These large cranes appear entirely white, and they have the right color legs. But the thing is that the Siberian cranes only look entirely white when they're on the ground. They have huge black feathers on their wings that become visible as soon as they spread them. And their beaks are still the wrong shape. What about a stork? There is a white stork native to the Japanese islands, but it has even more black feathers on its wings and its beak shape is even more wrong. What about a heron? Now we're getting warmer again. There are a number of white herons, sometimes called egrets, native to Japan, collectively called shirasagi, literally white heron. They are all white, their beaks are the right shape, and their legs, while normally black, can be pinkish. There's just one problem, and it's that unlike cranes or storks, and unlike the bird in the show, herons tuck their super long necks up against their bodies while in flight, making it look like they have very thick necks or are wearing a scarf. Now the Guadon bird does appear to be going in for a landing, and maybe it's already unfurled its neck, but this one unfortunate detail makes it impossible for me to say with confidence that we have beheld Shirasagi. So there's nothing that fits quite exactly right. And I spent more time than you would think trying to find exactly the right bird. You are free to come to your own conclusions about what exact bird this is supposed to be. Maybe it is a new type of wading bird, evolved to meet the demands of space, and capable of perfectly understanding other space boids. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I should laugh or not. This is the problem a lot of times. I don't know whether or not I should laugh. Should I suppress the laughter? <laughs> should I just let it go? I think you can laugh at space boids. Fortunately for me and this research piece, however, it turns out that when we talk about the symbolism of cranes, herons, and storks in the Japanese tradition, there's plenty of overlap. In fact, the single most often told story about cranes in Japanese legend, that of the crane wife, is in some versions about the heron wife instead. On the surface level, cranes and herons are associated with nobility, longevity, and divinity. Nobility is easy enough to understand just by looking at them. They are fancy birds. As for longevity, the folk wisdom says they can live for a thousand years. And divinity? It's common in most cultures for birds, especially larger birds, to be viewed as messengers of the gods because of how they straddle the two worlds of the earth and the sky. 
This applies even more so to the crane and the heron. As wading and diving birds, they can travel seamlessly between three worlds, heaven, earth, and underwater. At one shrine in Tokyo twice a year, dancers don white heron costumes, including massive headdresses and feathered capes to invoke the bird's power as they perform a purification ritual nearly a thousand years old. Being large for birds, cranes and herons are also sometimes flying mounts for humanoid gods. In the Japanese tradition, it is said that the mountain-dwelling goddess of iron and smithcraft, Kaneyago no Kami, traveled on the back of a great white heron to the province Izumo, and there taught a local man the secret and sacred arts of the forge. It's also said that cranes bear the souls of the worthy departed across the waters to reside forever in the pure western paradise of ultimate bliss. The well-known tradition of folding origami cranes for good fortune, or for the sake of a specific wish, comes from these three basic associations. Make an offering of 1,000 paper cranes, one for each year of the crane's life, and the noble crane will deliver your prayer directly to the gods. Those surface-level associations are all positive, and are probably sufficient to explain why the Zabi court has been breeding these birds during their exile out in the asteroid belt. The Axis characters want the Ayug and Titans characters who see this bird to see nobility, longevity, and divinity. But there are other, subtler, and darker associations, too. Associations that might have flown over the heads of some in the audience. First, while the story about the thousand wish-granting origami cranes is an old one, since the 1950s it has gained both international fame and a new association with one of Zeta Gundam's most crucial themes, the damage that war does to children, even long after the war is over. On August 6, 1945, two-year-old Sasaki Sadako survived the atomic blast that destroyed Hiroshima. In 1954, 11 years old, Sadako started to show signs of leukemia. She was hospitalized in February 1955. There she heard the story about the thousand cranes and set herself to folding them. In October 1955, having folded 1,300 cranes, she ate a small bowl of ochazuke, which is tea poured over rice, declared it to be tasty, and then passed away, her soul perhaps to be carried by a crane to the Western Paradise. Sadako was and remains a symbol of war's cost. A statue raised in her memory at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial proclaims, This is our prayer, peace in the world. To this day, many of the peace memorials in Hiroshima are adorned with thousands upon thousands of strings of paper cranes that people fold and bring there. Looking further back into history, we see that the crane and heron were not seen as divine in a purely positive sense. Perhaps it would be better to call them eerie creatures of mystery and mysticism. In the medieval period, the heron was even viewed as a yokai, a monster. And these birds fly screaming through the night. And you can imagine how hearing something like this in the darkness, you might think, oh yeah, that is 100% some kind of monster. Heron and crane, both migratory birds, are also symbols of the changing seasons and of change in general. This is linked to another of Zeta's most important themes, the cyclical nature of conflict. When the Earth's sphere became too hostile for them, Zeon's survivors traveled the countless miles to a safe haven in the asteroid belt. Now the winter ice thaws and they return. 
The return of this bird to the Earth's sphere in the company of these returning Xeon remnants signals a turn of the wheel, a change in season, an old thing made new again. Now remember for a moment that ironsmith goddess I mentioned before, Kaneago, the one who flew into town on the back of a great snowy heron. We know a little bit about her worship, and what we know is fascinating. But first, I have to establish a bit of context. In Shinto tradition, generally, there is a concept known as kegare, meaning defilement or pollution. This is a state of being that attaches to a person when they come into contact with one of the taboo elements, and which persists until ritually cleansed. When we talk about purification rituals, like that heron dance I mentioned earlier with the big headdresses and the wing feather capes, we are talking about efforts to cleanse kegare. If left untreated, this pollution acts like a magnet for misfortune, and you can pass it on to other people. Bringing pollution, bringing defilement into a holy place can even befoul that place or the gods who reside there. The main sources of pollution are birth and death, blood and disease. But not all kami regard these equally. Kaneyago seems to have nursed a special hatred for blood, especially menstrual blood and childbirth. She hated adult women, since they were the sources of menstrual blood and childbirth, and instead she surrounded herself with men and with children. And of all things, she seems to have had a special fondness for death. Far from being a taboo and a source of pollution among worshippers of Kaneago, death and dead bodies were integrated into the worship of the smith goddess. The bodies or the bones of deceased smiths would be incorporated into the construction of smithies in order to ensure that the goddess would favor the craft that was done there. Now, there is one final association with the white heron that I want to highlight, and I saved this one for last because I think it might actually be the most important one for this episode. During the reign of Shomu, one of the emperors from Japan's prehistorical legendary period, Japan was threatened by a fleet of foreign invaders, and the armies of the emperor were nowhere to be found. But as the enemy fleet drew near, the gods at a shrine near the sea caused a vast pine forest to spring up overnight. Taking on the forms of great white herons, thousands of spirits from the shrine perched in the branches. When dawn came and the invaders saw this sight, they mistook the distant white birds for the banners of a vast army waiting to meet them. Deceived, they turned their ships around and went home. Axis Xeon looks very strong. They have a lot of mobile suits and countless soldiers, vast throne rooms with ornamental birds flying around. But how much of that is a show of strength meant to deceive Ayug and the Titans? As Haman herself says in this episode, her pilots lack experience, her soldiers are untested. And how many of them are there really? If you tested the might of Axis, how many of their banners would turn out to be birds? We are joined once again by MSB's physics consultant and friend of the podcast, Iraj. Hello. It's been a while since Iraj has been on the program, so if you would, please reintroduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Iraj. I am a grad student at um, Unnamed University <laughs> in New York. Um, <laughs> Gundam University. Gundam University. Yes, yeah, so I study, I study physics. And specifically, I study squishy physics of DNA, how DNA moves and jiggles and things like that. But in general, 
physicists learn how the world works. And so I find that even though I study DNA, which is not what Gundam is made out of, <laughs> I can apply some of my general thinking and try to guesstimate how a certain situation would work if it could work. Yeah, so I hope to be able to shed some light like the mirrors we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> when Iraj has appeared previously on the podcast, he helped us first to analyze the physics of the magical space mace, as well as re-entry back in episode five, and then to discuss how the ADZAM leader might function were it to actually be created. The world's most sophisticated head massager. <laughs> <laughs> full of powerful electric currents. Yes. You'll be pleased to know, by the way, that this exact episode we were discussing on the podcast this week from Zeta Gundam includes a successor to the ADZAM leader, one built to be somewhat more efficient. It's actually called the Spiderweb, and it's a net deployed by three mobile suits that they use to capture another mobile suit, and then they pump a bunch of electricity into the net, nice. superheating and disabling temporarily that mobile suit. That's cool. Because there's direct contact between the net and the mobile suit. I think it would be a lot more efficient. Yeah, that sounds. <laughs> that's just shocking somebody at that point. Yeah, no, that's good. But that's not what you're here to talk about. No, I'm not. As Iraj hinted at earlier, we have asked him to look into the feasibility of the Federation's solar system a massive array of mirrors which they used way back in season one at long distance to uh, melt uh, most of an asteroid. Back when the solar ray system actually appeared on the show, Iraj was not available. And so we looked into it from more of a squishy humanities history perspective. And we talked about how you can, in fact, use a giant array of mirrors to set something on fire. We couldn't actually do the math to figure out whether this solar ray system could feasibly do what it's shown doing in the show. But now we can. We got a math doer. <laughs> <laughs> I am a math doer. It's all I can do. Before I get into this, I've been told that the thing I wrote for this will be put on the show notes. So if you want to look at more details and go through the math by yourself, because that's really fun and really cool, <laughs> you should look at it. But no, doing math is fun. People should be less scared of math. And that's why I like coming here, because writing things like what I wrote for this episode is one of my favorite parts about knowing how to do math. I can look at a situation that I see on a TV show and in 20 minutes, kind of on the back of an envelope, estimate whether it like even makes sense or not. It feels very powerful being able to kind of have this basic understanding of how things work. So I hope you appreciate the journey I'm about to take you on. <laughs> well, I am already in awe. <laughs> All right. So the basic uh, idea of this whole thing is that when light is emitted from something like the sun, all energy that you get from the sun is in the form of light. It can be light that you can't see, like, for example, infrared or ultraviolet and things like that. But pretty much all the energy you get from the sun is light. And you can assume that the sun is a sphere, and so the light kind of goes out in all directions the same amount. And so uh, one thing you can, in general, estimate is that at any given distance, the fraction of the sun's energy that you get is pretty much proportional to what fraction of the area that the light has covered you're going to uh, cover. Um, one way to think about this 
is, uh, let's think about it for a second. If I put a candle on a table and I put like a spherical like paper bag around it and I poke a hole in that paper bag, if the paper bag is very small, that hole represents a pretty large fraction of the paper bag's area. So a lot of light is going to come out. But if the bag is the size of a room and I poke a tiny hole into it, the relative amount of light that comes out is pretty small. And to take this back to the Gundam example, if you have a mirror that's one square meter, that's going to, at any given distance from the sun, absorb the same amount of light no matter where you put it, as long as it's the same distance away from the sun. And if you have two of those mirrors, they're going to absorb exactly double. And if you move them closer to the sun, they'll absorb more. If you move them further away, they'll absorb less. And so this is actually kind of intuitive to us, right? Uh, if I have a fire in the corner of a room, when I get further away, it looks dimmer and it feels less hot. That's simply because when I'm at a larger distance, there's been more area for the light of that fire to like spread into. Um, there's also the fact that it attenuates because it's interacting with the air and everything. But in space, we don't have to worry about that. Um, so the basic uh, thing you can do to kind of estimate how much light you can get from the sun to reflect onto an asteroid if you want to melt it is you have to think about the relative areas of these mirrors and essentially uh, the area of the sphere you would draw at the radius that these mirrors are away from the sun. If you're trying to think of how much energy do we, the Earth, get from the sun, you know the Earth is, uh, I forget, how, I have absolutely no idea. Some distance. <laughs> you, can, you think of a sphere that has that radius, and the Earth is a tiny disk in that sphere, and we get that fraction of the sun's light. So essentially, this mirror is doing the same thing. It's taking a certain amount of that light, and then it's sending it onto an asteroid. But then you might think, oh, what's the difference between this mirror sending that light onto the asteroid and just the asteroid being lit up by the sun because it's the daytime? The difference is if you have a curved mirror, like a magnifying glass, you can take a bigger area of light and focus it onto a small region. So the power at the target becomes much increased, right? And that has the same effect as if you were to take that target and move it much closer to the sun. Exactly. When I take a magnifying glass at the age of uh, 10 years old and I burn a leaf on the sidewalk, what I'm essentially doing is I'm taking the amount of light in my palm-sized magnifying glass and focusing it onto a point the size of like the tip of a pencil on the leaf, and then that point gets burned, right? So what you can basically do is you say, assume some things about the distance that these mirrors are from the sun. So let's say this asteroid is about the same distance that the Earth is to our sun. Then you have to assume some stuff about the actual size of the mirrors. I do remember sending you screenshots from this episode right? so that you could do some comparisons and <laughs> try to figure out the mirror size. I think I plugged in numbers. The distance of the Earth-Moon system to the sun is 1 AU, which is about 10 to the 11 meters. That's 100 billion meters, then what we're essentially trying to ask is how big do these mirrors have to be uh, for me to be able to melt an asteroid or burn an asteroid, right? So we want to assume something about the size of this military base so that we know what kind of an area we're focusing onto. 
And if you think it's comparable to maybe an airport or just like a, you know, what you picture as a military base, you might think it's okay, about five kilometers squared. Uh, that's like two kilometers by two kilometers, a little bit more than that. Um, so then knowing the distance from the earth to the sun and knowing the size of this military base, then you kind of want to ask how much energy are you trying to get from the sun onto that military base, right? You want to estimate A, how much stuff there is to heat up and how much you want to heat it up in how much time. Because given infinite time, I can heat up anything <laughs> to any temperature, right? So uh, assuming this base is made mostly of, I don't know, iron, which is just a metal uh, and has a depth of about one meter, it would probably be deeper than that. And it's probably made of stuff that's more complicated than iron, but again, future metals. Exactly, future metals. You're giving it sort of all the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. The, the most meltable military base we can conceive of. Exactly. But anyway, so then assuming it's not that deep, assuming it's made of iron, and you're assuming you don't actually want to melt the whole thing and just get it to the melting temperature of iron. Also, we are assuming it's going to take about 30 seconds because in the show when you actually see this happen it happens quickly people are surprised uh so it's not happening over like the course of hours or days right and you also assume that it starts at the temperature of space which is two kelvin so putting all this together and knowing the size of the base that takes a crazy amount of energy you would need mirrors that are 10 to the 5 meters across which is uh, 100 kilometers across and that's just in radius so then if you think about making like a disc that has that radius that is tremendously large right uh, that's the size of a small country so the likelihood that you could build something like this in space seems not that great it would also need to be you know a perfect mirror at this point we're assuming that the light gets through space with no loss at all it gets reflected with no loss at all we're assuming you're just getting it to the melting temperature of iron to a depth of one meter over 30 seconds. Um, but, you know, future tech uh, is one thing. Maybe, no, one thing, the sun over the course of its lifetime will get a lot bigger. So in a few billion years, <laughs> it's going to be a lot bigger. So maybe Gundam takes place in the future, so far in the future, where our sun is in the process of becoming a red giant. <laughs> And somehow they've preserved the human race exactly in the same form as it currently is. And I think that totally makes sense. So that's the, um, the only way this is plausible. The thing that makes this very, very prohibitive is this area law, right? Is the, this idea that like when I go further away from something, I don't lose energy proportional to the distance I am from that thing, but it's proportional to that distance squared. So when you're far away from something, it's really difficult to capture a large fraction of that thing's energy, right? So at our distance away from the sun, there's like, there's no way we're ever going to get more than a tiny fraction of the energy the sun is putting out unless we build a Dyson sphere, which people should look up. Dyson spheres are very cool. We actually covered that in one of our research pieces earlier when we were talking about Freeman Dyson. Oh, Freeman Dyson is amazing. And really smart and <laughs> thought about crazy things. Yeah. The mirror array is definitely not the size of a small country. <laughs> it's a shame. Again, this is very coarse estimate, but what I have here is 250 kilometers across, 
So I don't know. I think Switzerland is something like 400 kilometers across or something like that. So a little more than half of Switzerland. Yeah. Okay. Small country, very large city, maybe. And based on your description, you wouldn't want to try to do this with an array of rectangular mirrors, which is what they do in the show, right? They, they arrange a whole bunch of rectangular mirrors in an array. Well, that could actually be fine. So what you want is, at the end of the day, the whole mirror array to be curved. Mm. And so one thing physicists love to do is when you're analyzing something that's curved, if you just zoom in on it enough, there it looks like a straight line, right? Mm -hmm. So you could, if they're small enough rectangles and you have enough rectangles and you like have a little bit of an angle between all of them, then you can create a, a, a curve. That's, okay. that's fine. Yeah, a lot of our telescopes actually kind of work that way. You have detectors that are not curved, but you kind of arrange them in a curved manner and then you can get a, like a much broader like field of view. One thing they could have done would be to say, collect energy over a longer period of time in batteries and then focus that into a, a laser sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That would have been a more plausible weapon. Absolutely. I mean, one thing you could imagine, right, is if these mirrors each have a battery and are able to, with perfect fidelity, reproduce the light that they absorb, all you do is, um, if you want to reduce the amount of area you need by, say, a factor of 100, then you just wait 100 times the amount of time you're going to need here and um, collect 100 times the energy and spit it, right? Like the, the, the way it, it, it scales is very simple, right? You just want to pump a certain amount of energy into this base. Um, this is obviously not counting dissipation because if you do it too slowly, then the energy is going to dissipate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like if I'm trying to cook an egg and I put it on like a very tiny candle, I can wait as long as I want. It's never going to cook because it cools faster than it's heating up. But yeah, assuming you're doing it at like a reasonably fast rate. Because I will say uh, in the show, after the Federation deploys their big mirror array, a couple of episodes later, their enemies, the Principality of Xeon, do what I just said with the battery. And they have a, a big cylindrical colony that they've converted into a massive laser. They absorb solar energy over a long period of time and then they focus it and they shoot it. Yeah, that would work. That sounds very terrifying. Yeah, they turn a city full of people. I mean, they evacuate the city first, but they turn a city full of people into a giant laser gun. Yeah, the, the evil scientist in me is coming out. <laughs> can't, can't help but find that cool. You know, in a kind of a very poetic sense, that is what we do when we make lasers, right? All forms of energy we have are focused sun energy over long periods of time because the oil in the ground is just rotten plants and animals that were at the end of the day feeding on sun energy. So we're just storing sun energy in the ground. We burn it. We make electricity. We fill batteries. We plug those batteries into a laser pointer and then we give a presentation, right? But <laughs> at the end of the day, you're just focusing the sun onto the screen. And that's uh, your poetry for the day. <laughs> that's very poetic. It's like our entire industrialized society is just a complicated machine to release the sun. Yeah, except in lower quality energy by, you know. Well, I didn't say we were very good at it. <laughs> we're doing our best. You can't escape <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics. There's nothing you can do. But isn't heat also light? But it's worse light in a very qualitative and quantitative sense. Iraj, don't bring your light chauvinism onto our program. <laughs> All light is good. <laughs> it's probably fair in the grand scheme of things. 
once the heat death of the universe reaches us, all light will be the same. Before we go, Nina has a teaser for the research you can look forward to next week. It appears on screen for only the briefest of moments, but the massive emblem behind Mineva's throne is striking. A gold figure of a woman, hair spread out, arms outstretched, dress curving out and up, all in a pink and purple background. It reminded me immediately of a symbol from the TV adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. There, it appears on some feminist literature in The Time Before, and later as a symbol associated with the handmaids themselves and the Red Center, the organization that indoctrinates them. In this version, the figure of the woman is simpler. She stands at the center of a crescent moon, her outstretched arms touching its points. But the similarity is strong. So where does this symbol come from? What does it mean? My hunt for answers led me to mythology, modern paganism, ancient artwork, and a self-styled wizard named Oberon Zell Ravenheart. There will be rabbit holes. There will be dead ends. There will be visual aids. Next week. Thanks to the aforementioned rabbit holes and dead ends, I'd like to spend a little more time with this one. Next time on episode 2.35, The Cactus Flower. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 34 and... Darkness. No parents. Rekoa switches to succulents. Ah yes, the two genders, Quattro and Char. Heckner plays it cool. Brain poison. Yazan screens his calls. Everyone is traumatized. You know, you, you know. And, okay, Buma. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Minavazabi would have grown up better if Shar had stayed behind to raise her, on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The two music pieces used in the TNN were Heartbreaking and Funkorama, both by Kevin MacLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Although, as a side note, broom. Broom side note. The uniforms and the normal suits are all... 
so many different noises. Yeah. It's real noisy today. Here I go again. Hang on a second. Give me some of that recap. How did you describe the bird? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I just said a bird. <laughs> An unexpected bird. Okay. And the solar system, TM. <laughs> that confused me for a minute. It's like, what about the solar system? If the solar system could be possible, what? <laughs> I mean, it is. What do you mean, possible? <laughs> Language is confusing. Gundam names are confusing. You need a birder. You should have consulted. Uh, uh. I'm really into birds now. <laughs> you just want to be friends with. I mean, yes, obviously. I know. It's not that different than like having your ancestors buried next to the house. They're just, they're just buried in the house. Yep. Well, um. Uh, tied to the pillars to hold up the house. Kind of cool. Yeah, a little bit. Like, spooky, but also cool. <laughs> Later on in the escape sequence, Camille fires a bunch of bullets, he reloads his gun, and then in the very next scene, he reloads his gun again. Brekula still clearly not right. She takes a bullet for Quattro. She throws herself in front of him. Are they supposed to be in love with each other? Because I don't see that. No. <laughs> and that scene between them is so awkward in the last episode. I don't... And it's not like he's sitting by her bedside while she's wounded. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Uh, so so let's hard. make that a little yeah. less horrifying. <laughs> hey, Iraj, how do you feel about grad school? Grad school is very good, and people should go into it if they are very certain that there's only one thing they want to do <laughs> for all of their life. <laughs> That's hard on the voice. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> there's a thought. <laughs> Minavazabi running around wearing sunglasses. I assume that would be the only difference. I don't want to be in charge. I'm just going to tell you all what to do. <laughs> no responsibility. I did a lot of funny voices for this one. Yeah. Really stretching our ap stretching our acting chops. Our acting chops. Everything's awesome. Everything's, Everything's cool when you're part of a uke. Everything is awesome. Oh, see, I was going to say, everything is cool when you're part of a podcast. <laughs> it is, though. We are cool. Exactly. Our lives are great. I was being sincere. <laughs> <laughs>